It's April 22nd, 1898. Inez Knight and Jenny Brimhall are arriving in Liverpool, England as the first single women set apart as lady missionaries in this dispensation. Their challenges as they break new ground are next in chapter five, an essential preparation. This is Saints, volume three, the podcast. Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm James Perry. Joining us today is Matthew McBride, Director of Publications of the Church History Department, and Lisa Olson-Tate, a General Editor of the Saints Project, who has come back on for another episode. Thank you both for joining us today, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Great to be here. Lisa, it's so great to have you back again, and welcome to this season of the podcast, Matt. And Matt, actually, can you get us started by telling us a little bit about what the publication's division does to help Latter-day Saints around the world? Sure. In the publications division of the Church History Department, we produce publications in two genres. We publish scholarly works, uh, such as the Joseph Smith Papers, that are geared primarily for an audience of scholars and people that are studying and researching the history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And we also publish and create content for church members designed around helping to build understanding of church history and faith among members of the church. And Saints is a great example of that kind of product. But we've got a really talented team of historians. Lisa is among those historians. We have some really talented editors and others that help us in this work, but we're excited to be able to create content that we hope blesses church members, especially as they discover church history or encounter questions or have questions about church history. We want to help them to learn more. It's sometimes it's quite useful for listeners to understand the different pieces of what makes a church. And it's not just the bishops and the Relief Society presidents and members turning up on Sundays. There's a whole big operation in the background of people writing and researching and making history books and manuals. So we're glad that you can both join us today for this particular episode. And in this particular chapter, we have the emergence and the beat introduction to lady missionaries. We have Inez Knight and Jenny Brimhall, who are our way into understanding the world of female Latter-day Saint missionaries. So Matt, I just wanted to start by asking you this question. How had the church and its members been prepared for the introduction of these lady missionaries? So one of the ways that the church had become prepared for women to serve missions was through the actions of women themselves in relief societies over the course of the 1860s, 70s, and 80s. This is a time period during which the church is drawing a lot of scrutiny from others in the United States and throughout the world for its practice of plural marriage. And one of the interesting dynamics about that in the 1870s in particular is that there was some thought from the outside that if they could, if people outside the church in the United States could just hear Mormon women speak, if Mormon women were given that opportunity and that platform to voice their opinions, their feelings, their concerns or questions about plural marriage, that that would have some effect in trying to persuade church leaders to abandon the practice. What they found instead is that Latter-day Saint women stepped forward in a, a really powerful way and found their voice, so to speak, in that public discussion in the United States over plural marriage as really prominent and effective and eloquent defenders 
of the church in its practice. And this becomes really important in the 1880s and into the 1890s, where you have church leaders that begin to recognize the ability that these women have to defend the church, to articulate our beliefs, and to speak in this public way. So as you get into the 1890s, you have in England, in particular, an anti-Mormon flare-up. There's a little bit of a crisis in the mission there. And part of it's spurred by ex-members of the church, William Jarman, who is very vocal and he's traveling around and he's publishing and holding these events where he's criticizing the church, criticizing the practice of plural marriage, even though this is a number of years after the manifesto. And these rumors continue to swirl. And Jarman is trying to capitalize uh, on that in his presentations. And the mission leaders in Europe are trying to figure out how do we counter this rhetoric? And there's a woman named Elizabeth McCune, and we tell this story in Saints as well. It's it's chapters earlier. But Elizabeth is visiting her son, who is serving a mission in England. We don't do this so much anymore, but it was not uncommon for those who had the means to travel back in the day to travel and to even travel to a place where they had a family member or loved one serving a mission and meet with them and, and even assist them in some way. And this is what she's doing. And she's called upon by the mission presidency to speak in defense of the church within this context of these anti-Mormon lectures that are being given. And her example as an articulate and an educated woman and a defender of the church in those public meetings, it spurs the mission presidency to write President Woodruff and ask for women who could serve missions. And so now getting to Jenny and Inez and their call, they're the first young single women who are called. And they were actually planning to do the same thing Elizabeth was, because Inez's brother was serving in the British mission at the time. And so they said, hey, what if we went on a trip? And her brother also happened to be uh, Jenny Brimhall's fiance. And they said, we're going to go on a trip. We're going to go to England, and maybe we can visit this missionary while we're there. And this is happening right at the moment that President Woodruff and President Cannon begin to make announcements that they're going to call women to serve as missions. And Jenny and Inez's bishop in Provo hears about this and then talks to them and says, what do you think? Would you like to serve a mission instead of just having this be a pleasure trip? You want to be missionaries? And they agree. And so he makes the arrangement and they're called formally to preach the gospel as missionaries while they're there. I really love the story of Inez and Jenny that they were the very first lady missionaries that were younger and single. Matt, I would just love to know what were some of the results of their decision to serve? Well, the immediate result of Jenny and Inez's decision to serve is, is of course, that they enter into the mission field and become the first young single women to have this experience. If you look at the pictures that we have, you have those two sitting there in the middle, sometimes of groups of dozens and dozens of men who are the young elders that are serving at that time. It was an interesting challenge for them. They were effective missionaries, and they did a couple of things. They preached the gospel to people who hadn't heard it, and they also were missionaries to the young male elders in the sense that they were there to show what women could do as missionaries and to persuade and convert these men who had not had prior experience serving alongside women that this experiment with lady missionaries was going to be effective. And they were really, really excellent missionaries. Now, the other effect is that they both come from a Provo ward. 
And what happens, as often happens in the church, because we have such close connections to our friends in our wards and in our stakes, is that we have a large number of young single women from Provo, Utah, and from the surrounding stakes become the majority of this first generation of young single women to serve missions. So Jenny and Inez, they go, and then you can kind of go through almost as if you're tracing a genealogy and you find out that Inez's next companion is a young woman from the Alpine Stake just a few miles to the north, uh, Eliza Chipman. And you have Josephine Booth, another woman from Provo. And you have all of these women who look to Jenny and Inez's examples, and they're very excited about this opportunity. And another woman who had spent a great deal of time in Provo, as Lisa could tell us, was Susie Young-Gates. She's tuned into this. She's aware that some of these young women from her stake and from either her ward or from neighboring wards are young women that are going out and they're pioneering this work. And at the time, she's also the editor of the Young Women's Journal. And so she's publishing articles about their experience. She's publishing interviews with mission presidents about why they called women and what women were doing in the field. She publishes letters from Jenny and Inez. And so it's through this network in Provo that you start to see this work blossom among young women in the church. It's significant in that way that that Jenny and Inez accepted that call and you can see what the immediate effects were. Of course, the long-term effects of that decision are with us still. And if you follow the numbers over time, you'll see that at the beginning, you've got just a few women that are called to serve as full-time missionaries, but that percentage begins to increase to whereby all through the middle of the 20th century, about 15% of the missionary force is comprised of sister missionaries. And there were moments when they comprised a higher percentage, notably during World War I, when there were so few men that could be called because of the draft and because of the war, that women came to comprise almost half of the missionary force for a short period of time. The other important inflection point was 2012, when President Monson announced that the age requirement for sister missionaries would change from 21 years down to 19. And then we saw another uptick in that percentage. And my understanding is that here, almost almost a decade after that decision, that it's still around a quarter of the missionary force today is young women. Lisa, in the chapter, we are introduced to President McMurrin, who in this chapter describes that people are going to have the opportunity to hear from real live Mormon women Could you tell us what it meant to be a Mormon woman at this time? You know, how were they seen by the public? Well, at this point, Latter-day Saint women had been objects of scorn and pity and criticism and controversy for several decades based on the practice of plural marriage, which people outside of the church just couldn't imagine in any way except as a form of slavery or coercion or women being duped and controlled by men. And so there's a caricature, really. I mean, like you can even find cartoons of the day portraying these downtrodden, sad, horrible women who were so victimized by their circumstances, by the men in their lives. And then a lot of the anti-Mormon literature and lectures like William Jarman and so forth, they would play on these 
images. They would play them up and use them as part of their propaganda, their criticisms of the church. And of course, this is very opposite to what Latter-day Saint women's view of themselves is, as the second half of the 19th century has been a time of expanding opportunities and activities for Latter-day Saint women in the church, in the Relief Society, the Young Women's Organization. They have built bridges and formed connections with national and international women's organizations and are seeing themselves on the vanguard of progressive efforts to improve women's lives. And we've talked about that in prior episodes with the new woman and the rise of education and so forth. So because so much criticism and disapproval of the church is focused on women, having them step forward and defend and just represent the power of an educated, articulate, positive young woman to represent what it means to be a Latter-day Saint is just on the face of it, a refutation of these images and caricatures that are being tossed around by way of discrediting the church. Matt, how were these lady missionaries received by their male counterparts, these elders that were also serving full-time missions? Well, first I would say that you probably can't speak to their reaction as a whole, as a group, because there were varying reactions. And and you can even see this in the letters and the words of the mission president, some of whom has really, really embraced what they called the lady missionary experiment enthusiastically. And sometimes they would say things like the young women who come to these missions, they're so much more articulate. They're the best missionaries we have. That didn't always thrill the elders who had been there for months or years and had been serving. Part of the reason for it is that you've called this small group and that first cohort of sister missionaries, they were very educated young women. We've got women that were products of the church academy systems. They were trained to be school teachers. They were articulate. They knew their stuff. They were they were really good at speaking. That was true of many of the young men who were serving missions, but many of the, the elders were young men who grew up in farming communities or on farms and had a more limited education. And this experience for them as missionaries was the first time that they had been called upon to speak in public or do some of the things that missionaries are asked to do. So that was an interesting dynamic that was the middle of it. We have a lot of sources, largely in the voice of those young women, in their journals and their letters to their families, that make it clear that those missions at that point when this lady missionary experiment was still new, that those missions were not the most hospitable places for young women to serve. The missions, before they arrive, they're very masculine male spaces. And everything about the way they're structured is designed around ordained men. So, for example, Inez Knight talks about her experience going to the first meetings. And all the meetings that she would go to, the person would stand up to Gaduck and say, Elders, welcome. And they would sing songs like, we're the true-born sons of Zion, or ye elders of Israel. And as women who were in these meetings, they weren't going to not sing. And so they would sing along, they would sing, we're we're the true-born sons of Zion, or whatever. Um, And they were always addressed in this way, as if they were just part of this group. And so there arose this almost humorous response that you see in the letters and the journals of several of these women, where they call themselves the female brethren. And it took some time for mission leaders, for others to adjust to this new reality. There were a few instances 
where the young elders, because of their expectations about gender and the way that they grew up and what they were taught in their homes, decided that maybe they knew better than President Woodruff. There's an instance in which young elders in one area, they have a housekeeper that is working to take care of the house that the elders stay in and in which the local members meet. So they've lost the services of this housekeeper. And then they say, well, why don't we have the sister missionaries do that for a while? And of course, we'll try to find another housekeeper, but they never really make that a priority. And so we've got weeks and even months that go by and these young women are sitting there saying, President Woodruff called me to preach. Why am I here taking care of the domestic chores in the conference house? That's not what I was called to do. And there was a timely intervention by the mission president who explained in no uncertain terms to those young men that that's not why the women were there. (laughs) I loved that because it just gave you a little bit of an insight into some of the challenges that they had to navigate outside of the challenge that It's already presented to you when you're asked to travel to a foreign country and preach the gospel to strangers, to speak in public in street meetings, do all the stuff that the elders themselves are terrified of doing. (laughs) And we know they are because the mission president's always exhorting them and sending these circular letters around and saying, now you got to be a man. You got to go to that street meeting and you need to steal your nerves and you're a warrior. And you need to preach the gospel and you need to combat those people who are spreading lies about our church using that kind of language. We know that this is a terrifying experience for anyone, any young person that grew up in rural Utah to go to London and be on a stage like that. And then on top of all that, you have these young women who have this other challenge that they face of trying to make sure that they have the leeway and the support of others in carrying out the commission that they received from the prophet. And it was new. And and I don't say any of this to blame the young men. I'm sure it was just so different and so new, and they're all coming to it with ideas about how things are supposed to work. And that's part of what I love about this aspect of our history is to see prophetic direction to call these women to accomplish something really important for the church at an important moment and see how that made the members squirm a little bit and have to try to get used to something new to, to change. It's quite an interesting episode. So Lisa, there is of course another milestone here with Harini Wahanga being the first Maori called into full-time missionary service. What do you think it was that church leaders were hoping his mission would accomplish? Well, I think there are a few things. I think there's a recognition that as a Maori, he will have the ability to speak to and to reach other Maoris in a way that Anglo missionaries just might not be able to do. That he'll have a common ground of language and culture and understanding that will enable him to reach out to them. They're also aware that there have been some rumors circulating about what the Fahanga's experience has been in Utah and that that could be a detriment to missionary work in New Zealand. And so they're hoping that his testimony and presence will be able to dispel some of those rumors, not unlike what's happening with the sister missionaries in England at the same time, where the best way to counter misinformation is by people with firsthand experience. Thank you so much. Matt, at this point, missionary work had been happening among the Maori for almost 20 years. 
And how is it that there hadn't been a Maori called as a full-time missionary until Harini was called? Such a great question. It's, it's a question that we ask coming from our own understanding of how missions work today. We live in a world today where missionaries are called in every nation, and then they just crisscross the globe and they travel all over the place. You have missionaries from Japan that serve in Salt Lake, and you have missionaries from England that serve in South Africa and, and from Ghana that serve in Florida. And this is just kind of a reality that we've become accustomed to because of the growth of missionary work over the last century. But one thing that it's important to do as we go back and travel through time to get to this moment in which Harini is called on his mission is to remember that up until this point in the history of the church, we have a concept of gathering to one place that's just very powerful and very strong. And it stems from those early revelations to Joseph Smith about establishing a Zion community, a city even, to which saints would gather in preparation for the second coming. And in the 1870s and 80s, this is what Utah and the Intermountain West has become, is a center of gathering. And so there's a very strong conception in church leaders' minds and in, in all members of the church, really, that that's the center and that's Zion, and that everywhere else is a mission field, and that our responsibility was to send missionaries from Zion to the missionary fields to gather people back to Zion to continue this work of building community together in preparation for the second coming. Now, Hirini Fanga's call happens right on the cusp of a real transition in that way of thinking. Because between that moment and for the next half century, really, there's a real shift away from that conception of the gathering to a conception that emphasizes the creation of strong stakes throughout the world to which Latter-day Saints gather, and to the proliferation of temples and temple building in different parts of the world, so that there's not so much a gathering to one geographical location, but a gathering to the stakes of Zion and to the temples to worship the Lord and to strengthen one another and to live as disciples of Christ throughout the world. Why is that important to remember? Well, think about Hirini Faanga's experience. He's in New Zealand. Missionaries come and they proselytize, they teach. He eventually gathers, so to speak, when he moves to Utah. And then he's called as would have been appropriate and expected at that time. He's called as somebody who's living in Zion to go back out to a missionary field. And it's just at this moment before we have reached the next phase in development of missionary work, where we can start to think about calling full-time missionaries who don't live at the center, so to speak. You have experiments going on around that time and through the early decades of the 20th century where you have local missionaries that are called on a part-time basis. And that's kind of an experiment that we try and, and with some success, frankly, for a period of time. But it's really not until you get to the latter part of the 20th century when we start to have a more robust mechanism for calling missionaries wherever they may live and having them, as I said, crisscross the globe in this work the way that we see today. So the pattern that Hirini follows is kind of what would have been expected for anyone, whether it's a Maori convert or a Norwegian convert or whatever. They would join the church because of missionary work in the land where they lived. They would gather to Zion, and then they would be called to go back out. And what we see in practice is that most often people were called back to 
their ancestral homelands. In fact, you can trace the origins of a missionary work in most parts of the world to people who joined the church, had, had either immigrated somewhere, maybe to the United States, and then encountered the church and then went back to their parents' homeland, or had joined the church in a particular region of the world, gathered, and then were called back out again. And that's exactly what we see happening with Hirini. And the, the one thing that I would say about his experiences, we talked earlier about what church leaders might have expected or hoped to happen. It's clear too, reading the story, that one thing that he hoped to accomplish was to continue all of that great genealogical work that he had begun as a saint who has gathered and has had access to temples. You know, that work of gathering genealogical information to be able to continue to push temple work forward is clearly really important to him. And that's, again, another part of this transition where you have gathered saints that are near temples and people living in mission fields, and, and the pull of the temples is so strong, and you can see that in his experience. We recognize today how powerful it is to have a missionary from West Africa called to serve somewhere else in West Africa that can speak to the culture, that can speak to the concerns and the questions that people in that part of the world have, because we're all a little bit different. We all come from different backgrounds. And Lisa alluded to this when she said that church leaders began to recognize or to expect that Hirini Faanga would be able to speak to Maori in a way that Anglo members of the church couldn't speak to them. And so that's kind of just some growing pains and, and a learning curve that the church is going through. This isn't an effort for North Americans to proselytize the world. This is the Lord's work, and the Lord wants to be able to speak to people cogently and persuasively and effectively in their own language and in their own cultural milieu. And the church is learning through all of these experiences that one of the most effective ways to do that is to have people like Hirini speaking to other people like Hirini. Which also speaks to the other story about sister missionaries and the way that bringing women into missionary work, into the work of proclaiming the gospel enables us to speak to people who might not otherwise hear us or to give an example and a model that will resonate and be meaningful to people beyond just this smaller paradigm that missionary work has taken place according to up until this point. So both of these stories give us a window into the expanding understanding of the restoration and what it means to preach the gospel to everyone in the world. I really love that point. These stories are examples of why continuing revelation is important. Yeah. And how revelation is really necessary and helpful to us in the church to navigate the world that we live in. The challenges that we face are so different than the challenges that were faced by Latter-day Saints in England in the 1890s or in New Zealand in the 1880s. Cultures are different. Things change over time. What a blessing it is to have this principle of continuing revelation. And these stories are such good examples of how that revelation helps us navigate the path forward with direction from the Lord. Wow. Well, thank you both so much for sharing these really valuable insights, because we're looking at something that happened 120 years ago in both of these cases. They're happening around the same time, really quite seismic 
effects and changes on the church and the way that we have the church today can be traced all the way back to this period where they're almost experimenting, trying new things. And clearly as they're trying to better understand and be more effective at their church's mission of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, we see revelation in action as they undertake these new endeavors started by the ideas and suggestions of others. So as two of those who've been heavily involved in the planning and the researching and the writing of saints, how do you hope this story might motivate or inspire readers today? Well, we chose these stories specifically to show some of the origins of things that we now take for granted within the church. And they come about by revelation and by discussion and needs that arise and questions that are asked. And I think it's helpful. This is one of the things we hope saints accomplish is for members of the church to recognize that that process has played out over and over and over again in the history of the church. And to kind of recognize that the things that we take for granted in the church today have an origin and have a history to them that we can appreciate and that can show better how the Lord's hand has been present in the restoration in ways both large and small over time and in ways that we might not have thought about before. Well, thank you so much, Matt and Lisa, for joining us today and for sharing your perspectives and your expertise with our listeners. Thanks for having us. It's great to be here. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you took away some new insights into this volume. And we would love to hear your thoughts, opinions, questions, and insights from this chapter of Saints. And you can email saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. It would be great to hear from you. Until next time, I'm James Perry. And I'm Shailen Back. Thanks so much for listening.